This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Our scripture reading this morning is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, can be found on page 980 in your pew Bible. Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Thanks, Lynn. Good morning. Hey, welcome to Redeemer. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, It's really good to be with you on this really beautiful day. Hopefully this is not false spring. This is the beginning of real spring. I hope, I pray. Um, Either way, it's good to be here. Uh, Let's pray, and then we will get into Philippians 2. God, uh, thank you. I feel really thankful to be here uh, this morning with all of these people. You know all of us. You know everything that's gone on in our lives. You know everything that is going to happen. You know everything that's ever happened in the world. You made everything. And still, somehow, some way, uh, you're here and you see us. So, So thank you. Will you, through your spirit, give us hearts that are soft, that are open uh, to you? Will you help us to see your love, to grasp and comprehend um, who you are, what you've done, and will you change us? Uh, Will you make us, if we're the people who've received the love of God, will you help us to be a people who can give and extend that love to others in our lives? Uh, And we need your help to do that uh, because we're pretty hopeless by ourselves. Um, So, Father, uh, do whatever glorifies you today. We want to hear you speak. We want to follow you. We want to know you. So help us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you're at a grocery store this time of year, chances are that in the checkout line or aisle, there's going to be some kind of magazine uh, with a picture of Jesus on the cover and a title or headline like discovering the real Jesus or uncovering the story about how Jesus became God. There's something about uh, the Lent and Easter season that puts Jesus back in the collective consciousness of our culture and society and reminds us that the world changed because of Jesus. All of those magazine covers, uh, anything that you see about him is trying to wrestle with the undeniable fact that history split in half after Jesus of Nazareth. And so, so the question that we all have to wrestle with, whether we are a Christian, atheist, somewhere in between, not sure, is what did happen? Like, how do we make sense of all of the ways that the world changed because of Jesus? 
And so in this Lenten season, which is the season in the church calendar leading up to Easter, we are spending time looking at different parts of the Bible that show us aspects of who Jesus is. That's the series title that we're going under, Jesus is fill in the blank. And so far we've talked about how the Bible says that Jesus is the center and point of everything. So if you ever wonder, what's the point of all of this? What's the point of existence? What's the point of my life? It is Jesus. It's to know him. It's to be caught up into his story. It's to see him. It's to worship him. He holds everything together and he's the point of everything. We've seen that Jesus shows us that, uh, G, that uh, scripture shows us that Jesus is actually God. He made everything. He spoke everything into existence. He is above everything else in the universe. And somehow that God is also truly, fully human. And that paradox is at the center of Christianity, that the God who made everything and doesn't need anything became human. And so this morning, we're in Philippians chapter 2, which is one of the deepest, richest writings about the incarnation of Jesus, uh, probably in all the Bible. And we're going to try to wrap our head around things uh, that it's impossible to wrap our heads around. And the goal of that, uh, man, I read so many books this week that were basically like, here are all the mistakes and problems and heresies that you should avoid if you try to talk about this or understand it. They're like, they're, hundreds of books have been written over the last 2,000 years trying to figure out what these verses are talking about, how the God who made everything set all of that aside to become human. And the, the point that I want us uh, to walk away with, I, I, I don't care if you walk away knowing some cool trivia facts um, about theology or feel a little bit more confident in your mind about being able to explain something. Those are good things. The point of this text is worship, though. Um, The point of this is to see and try to um, come as close as we can to understanding who this God is, not so that we can just talk about it, but so that we we can worship him. We can know him because what you, what you think about who God is really matters. It really, really matters for your life. You might not think that, but if you think that God is uh, kind of distant, far removed, cold, calculating, waiting for you to mess up or waiting for you to perform your way into his good graces, that's going to change the way that you move through the world, right? You're going to be uh, insecure. You're always going to be trying to look at yourself, trying to make sure that you're behaving uh, properly, that you're doing the right thing so that you can be okay. Or if you think that God is maybe uh, generous and well-meaning, but not ultimately in charge of everything, your life is going to feel really precarious, right? Because if God has good intentions, but can't ultimately do anything about where we are, then like that means it's on us to make sure that we're okay. What you think about God really matters. And the picture that we see of God in Philippians chapter two is one who holds all power. Nothing catches him off guard. He's not surprised by anything. He's not threatened by anything. And that God who possesses all power so that he can make everything with a word actually uses that power for others' benefit and advantage. He doesn't 
use his power and authority just to make himself better or more secure. Instead, he empties himself. He embraces and accepts weakness and even suffering for our sake. The, the main point in this passage and the main point uh, in this sermon is that the life and death of Jesus show us that God delights to empty himself out for the sake of others. Who is God? He's the one who is in charge of everything. He has all power. And he loves. It makes him happy to pour himself out for your sake and for the sake of the world. So there are a lot of loaded things in that sentence. There are a lot of questions that are going to come up, especially that phrase, empty himself. Like, what does it mean for God to empty himself? How does he do that? What does that look like? Uh, And that's our uh, sermon title for today. Jesus is self-emptying. In in Jesus, we see that God empties himself. So I want to look uh, at these verses in three kind of angles uh, or movements. Uh, The first, we're going to look at um, how self-emptying, pouring himself out, is an essential part of God's nature. Part of what it means for God to be God is that he pours himself out for the sake of others. Next, we're going to look at how the death of Jesus is the ultimate display of God's self-emptying nature. If you want to see the clearest picture of what it looks like for God to empty himself for others, you look at the cross. And then finally, we're going to look at, um, so what? What does that mean? What does that mean for us? What does that mean for the way that we live? Um, And again, hundreds of books have been written on this. We're going to do it in 31 minutes and 35 seconds, according to my sermon clock. Before we get into that, let me give you a little bit of context. Uh, the book of Philippians was written by Paul the Apostle to the church at Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony that was mainly settled by ex-Roman soldiers. So it is a city that is wealthy, that is powerful, that is resourceful. Uh, and the worship and following of Caesar is kind of central to everything that happens there. Caesar is at the middle of everything. It's a really political city. And it's the city where people, if you're a bunch of ex-soldiers, are used to people in position and power, exercising that position and power over you and telling you what to do and using you for their benefit and advantage. Humility was not a virtue in Philippi. In fact, if you were humble, you were weak. You were outcast. You didn't have what it took. Instead, you had to secure yourself at the expense of others. We all probably know to some extent what that's like, right? We've had a boss or a coworker or a teacher or someone in our lives who uses the position, power, influence, and authority that they have, not for your sake or the flourishing of people around them, but to make themselves uh, better, to get more things for themselves. Always kind of asking, okay, what is in this for me? So when Paul writes to this city, it's a bunch of people who are really used to being taken advantage of right? They're used to just getting in the line and doing whatever the most powerful person tells them to do. And Paul, to this church, talks about how Jesus is actually Lord, which is a title for Caesar. So if he's saying, hey, do you want to know who's actually at the top of the hierarchical pyramid? Do you want to know who's actually in charge of everything? Well, it's not Caesar. It's actually Jesus, Jesus is Lord and Jesus is in control of everything. And Jesus is a lot different than Caesar. 
Jesus is a lot different from all of the other people who have used their position and power for their own advantage at the expense of others. Jesus is different. He's not vain. He's not insecure. He doesn't grasp onto power. He doesn't get rid of threats. Instead, he empties himself. And that's what Paul is talking about in the first two verses, the, the self-emptying nature of God. Actually, the first three verses. Um, re- read with me again. Let's just read this again. It's kind of short. Um, Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Uh, if you have your Bibles open, go ahead and look down. If not, uh, it should be on page 980 in the Pew Bible in front of you. So Paul starts with a command. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, and here's kind of the meat, the substance, he's, he's going to give us an example of this mind of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. So these verses um, are some of the most famous in the New Testament. A lot of people think that they're uh, an ancient hymn or poem about Jesus. So what we have right here is maybe the earliest human words about Jesus uh, in history. Uh, People, when they're trying to describe who Jesus was, wrote this and they would sing it or uh, confess it in the churches to talk uh, about Jesus. And there are a lot of really big questions that come up with it. Like, what does it mean that Jesus was in the form of God? What does it mean that he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped? What does it mean that he emptied himself? Those are a lot of really big questions. How does God empty himself and still be God and still make sure the universe doesn't like spin off course and just self-destruct and implode on itself? Um, Let's look at these just kind of in order really quickly. What does it mean for Jesus to be in the form of God? Uh, There are going to be some people who look at verse 6 and conclude that it's saying Jesus wasn't really God, but he just kind of looked like or resembled God. Maybe that's because uh, out of all the humans that have lived before, he somehow found the secret to live a life of faithfulness and obedience, and because of that, uh, God kind of made him like him. Or maybe Jesus discovered the unique like secret of having a uh, relationship with God. Or other people will say what this is pointing to is that Jesus discovered the inherent divinity inside of all people. So uh, Jesus showed us the way that we're all kind of like God or in the form of God. Everyone like is trying to make sense of what, what, what does this mean? The problem is um, if you're looking at what Paul is actually saying, none of those options actually really work because the, the word that he uses, morphe, I don't like to use Greek words in sermons because it sounds really nerdy and I'm not a nerd. Um, but this word, morphe, uh, there were other words that he could have used to talk about all of those other things. But the word that he does use has to do with talking about the essential quality or nature of something. So when Paul says that Jesus is the morphe of God, what, what he's saying is that his essential identity is God, 
What defines him? Well, well, he is God. There's a massive assumption underneath this verse, which is that there actually is a God who made everything. That's not just an idea or a fairy tale. Behind the universe, behind everything that you see and experience in life, is a God who doesn't need anything. He's in control of everything. He spoke everything into existence. And he doesn't, like, he doesn't need us. Like that, that's what you see all throughout the Bible. God doesn't need us to be happy in himself or to be complete in himself. He has everything that he needs. So why, why are we here? Well, God is someone who delights to share what he has with others. So out of an overflow of love, God creates the world. He pours himself out and lives in relationship with something that is like him, but different than him, which is people. So, so what we see here is that there really is a God, and the early church recognized that this Jesus who they walked with, who they ate with, who they saw crucified, raised, and then ascending up to heaven was actually God in the flesh. So what does it mean for Jesus to be in the form of God? It means that he really, truly, at the core of his being, is God. And then he moves on and says something about how Jesus shows us who that God is. Because the next phrase, uh, this who though he was in the form of God, he really was God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's different than us. He, he, like, he had everything that he needed. He didn't need to get anything else to be content or happy or satisfied in himself. So Jesus, that Jesus in eternity, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Again, what does that mean? So there's another affirmation of Jesus' character. He's equal with God. He's not some lesser being or some assistant God or demigod. He's equal in every way to who God is, but he doesn't use the benefits or advantages of being God for his own sake. Do you get that? that? That's kind of the image of um, grasping that you see there. He didn't count that equality with God as something to be grasped. We all probably know people um, who like hold on to things really, really tightly, right? Um, they're all, or, you know, and, and that's all of us. Like you, you do know someone, it's you. Um, it's me. It's me. If you don't know someone before, it's me. Uh, we're always grasping for things, right? Things that we don't have. Uh, things that we think are going to make us happy, things that we uh, think are going to make us okay. But Jesus isn't like that. Jesus does not hold on to all of the advantages that he enjoyed as God with closed fists, unwilling to share it with others. Instead, he pours himself out. He opens his hand and shares what he has with others for their sake. Uh, for, for, for the women in here, if you're part of our uh, One Big Story study that meets on um, Monday evenings, the whole story of the Old Testament that we've been reading so far is a story of us grasping at things that aren't ours, right? That's the story of humanity. Adam in the garden grasps at something that he thought God was holding out on for, um, from him. 
the people and the kings is just one story after another of people grasping for position or power or influence and then trying to hold on to that, even if it means that someone else is going to suffer. Jesus isn't like that. Jesus doesn't grasp. Jesus gives, even at his own expense. So Jesus uses his authority as something not to be used for his sake, but for the sake of others, so that others might benefit. And we see in verse 7 that the ultimate example of this is his emptying of himself by becoming human. Look at verse 7. But he, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What does it mean for God to empty himself? Um, again, hundreds of books. Go read them. Some people will say that when Paul says Jesus emptied himself, it means that somehow he emptied himself of divinity. He set aside the attributes of God. He ceases to be God somehow. And some say, well, it was necessary for God to become not God in order to save humanity. Again, a lot of problems with that. Um, Does not fit what Paul is talking about because um, he tells us exactly what he means by God emptying himself, right? Like he emptied himself how? By. That word by shows us what it means to empty himself. Emptying himself means being born in the likeness of, uh, uh, being, of taking on the form of a servant. A better translation of that would be slave and being born in the likeness of men. So the eternal God who made everything doesn't need anything, empties himself by accepting weakness, by going to the lowest spot. He could have come uh, as a king, as an emperor. He could have come as Caesar, right? He could have set himself up as the most powerful human uh, who has ever lived. Instead, Paul says that God empties himself by becoming the least and the lowest, by becoming a slave who is born in a really insignificant back corner of the world. And think about this. Um, The God who spoke everything into existence chose to be born as a human who needed to learn how to talk. Like the, 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 the God who wrote math and physics into the fabric of the universe had to learn geometry so he could build tables. And somehow those things fit together. And we get into a lot of problems trying to figure out exactly where, how, how does that, how does that work? People try to give a lot of analogies. Some people are like, well, imagine it's like you're the fastest runner in the world, um, but you enter into a three-legged race and you like bind yourself to another person and then you're still the fastest person in the world, but you're really limited, you're really slow. Um, maybe that has something to do with it. But when we come to areas in the Bible where we can't articulate or figure out, man, how does that work? What does that do? It's important to go back to you big picture and main points of what's going on. And what do we see here? This is a worship song. This isn't an instruction manual telling us exactly how 
God can be man and still be fully God and still be fully man. Instead, it's a song that's designed to blow our minds and bring us to the spot of saying, oh my God, like, why would you do that? It's designed to make us worship. It's designed to humble us and bring us before the God who is all-powerful, who doesn't need anything, and who empties himself out and pours himself out for our sake. And again, what you think about God really, really matters. There's some people in here, I know that like in, in your darkest moments or just in your everyday um, going around, like really wonder whether or not you can trust God, uh, whether or not he really hears, whether or not he really cares about you, uh, whether, you know, this is all just like a big cosmic joke and, you know, can we, can we really trust him? And what we see here um, is that the essential thing about our God is that he pours himself out for others. That's what it means for God to be love. For God to be love means to embrace weakness, to embrace humiliation, to embrace suffering, all while still st staying the God of the universe so that he could save and redeem a people and a world that's gone insane. It is essential to the nature of God to pour himself out for the sake of others. And in the second angle that Paul gives us about self-emptying love, the ultimate display of this self-emptying is found in the death of Jesus. Look at verse eight. So this God, this Jesus, who didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, he emptied himself, became a slave, born in the likeness of men, embraced weakness, limitation, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Remember, humility is not a virtue. Humility is weakness in this context. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this, this takes the reality of God's pouring out, self-emptying nature uh, to its ultimate revelation, to its clearest, fullest picture, the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus did not just come to give us an example of how to be human. Jesus did not just come uh, to show us what it looks like to perfectly obey God's law or be perfectly obedient to God. He does all those things. Of course, he's an example. Of course, he's uh, the best picture of what it means to be fully and truly human. But Jesus ultimately became human to display ultimate humility, the ultimate choosing of the lowest spot by suffering and dying on a Roman cross. And Paul says that that is what obedience looks like. Obedience might sound cold. It might sound legalistic. It might sound just like doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do, even though I don't want to do it. The picture that uh, we see here in Philippians 2 is more than that, though. Um, it's, it's, it's a picture of faithfulness and fidelity. Think about, um, think about healthy relationships, right? Think about a marriage or a flourishing, deep friendship. Those are built on faithfulness and fidelity to each other, right? 
acting in the best interest of the other person, uh, showing love to the other person, remaining faithful even when things get hard. That's the kind of relationship that God created humans to live in and exist in with him. So in this context, obedience isn't just a cold here. Here's my to-do list. Here's my things I need to check off uh, to be okay. It's a picture of flourishing relationship. It's a picture of everything that we were created for, faithfulness, fidelity. And Paul says that Jesus is the one who displayed and showed what that faithfulness and fidelity looks like. And it looks like loving even to the point of death. When we read the creation story in Genesis, we see God creating humanity, and we see that we haven't been able to do that. We were made to be faithful, and yet we prove to be faithless over and over and over again. That's the story of the Old Testament. We do not have what it takes. And it's probably the story of your own experience in life also. Um, You've experienced the loneliness or the hurt or the ache of things not working out, things not coming through, grappling with your own failure and weakness. We are a needy people who are unfaithful. Like we don't know how to do it. We don't have what it takes. And yet this Jesus displays ultimate faithfulness to God, even to the point of death on a cross. Here's the deal. We have lost the offense of the cross generally um, in the church. You know, we wear it um, on necklaces, we tattoo it on our shoulders, and it's just kind of a sign that's everywhere, right? It's our logo. Like we have the, we have the cross as, as a logo for our church. Um, the, the cross was the ultimate sign of weakness and humiliation and degradation in the ancient world. Uh, It was so offensive and so horrific that Rome made it illegal for Roman citizens to be crucified on crosses because it was so shameful. They didn't crucify everyone. Uh, They crucified people to make examples out of them, uh, to make a point, to show that they're in charge, to show that whoever this person thought they were, uh, Caesar is stronger Caesar always wins. Caesar always crushes those who stand in front of us. Like the, 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 the cross um, would have had the same kind of like visceral level of offense that um, we see when we um, like encounter pictures of people being lynched or we hear stories about World War II gas chambers. It's like that kind of equivalent thing, right? So when Paul says that Jesus displayed obedience and faithfulness to the cross on a cross, it it was a massive problem for a lot of people. Because it's not just like some general statement of warm, fuzzy feelings. It's it's ultimate weakness. It's ultimate humiliation. So Romans, Gentiles living around had a real problem because how could God choose to work through someone who had been crucified? Because only the worst people are crucified. And the people who were crucified lost. They didn't actually win. They didn't accomplish anything. Rome won. And then there's another thing that makes it difficult for Jewish people. In Paul's days, Jesus was a Jewish man. Uh, The gospel goes forth in Jewish context in that time. There's another problem with the cross because in Deuteronomy 21, we see that anyone who is uh, executed on a tree is under a curse from God 
For, for some reason, Deuteronomy 21, if someone dies on a tree, they are cursed by God. So how could this person who experiences ultimate weakness, suffering, shame, cursed by God, actually be the one who is putting everything right again? Uh, C.S. Lewis and the old church pastor, Athanasius, um, I think are really helpful in these areas. Has um, anyone read the Chronicles of Narnia in here? A few people. For those of you who haven't, I don't know, get on it. They're, they're, they're kids' books. Kevin Barb, stop it. Um, in, in Chronicles of Narnia, it's, uh, it's C.S. Lewis's children's story, which is a lot of things, but in it, uh, he's, he's giving a picture of what the gospel looks like, right? So it's a story of a land, Narnia. I know I said I wasn't a nerd earlier, and I'm, do- I'm undoing all of that work right now. It doesn't matter. It's a, great, it's a great illustration. So this land, Narnia, is under the curse of a witch. Um, there is no warmth. There's no happiness. It's always winter, uh, and everything is dying or dead. There's no, there's no joy. It's a picture of what uh, our life and world looks like under the curse of sin, right? Um, and so into this world come four siblings, Peter, Susan, Edmund, Lucy, uh, and the creator of the world, Aslan, uh, who come to start undoing the, the curse of the witch. The problem is Edmund, one of the siblings, betrays uh, his siblings and tries to grasp at power with the witch, thinks that he can secure a spot for himself uh, on the throne, um, and is a traitor. And so um, later, later in the book, um, the witch is talking to Aslan and says, hey, you know the law. Traitors deserve death. That's the, that's the consequence. Um, and Aslan says, okay, you're right, but I will give myself uh, for this boy, for Edmund. Let him go free, and I will take his place. He dies on a stone table. Um, everyone is sad. And then the next morning, spoiler alert, you guys haven't read it anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> Spoiler alert, he comes back to life, and the other children are wondering what to do. And uh, they, 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 said, they said, what happened? And Aslan said, well, the witch should have known that there's a deeper magic, there's a deeper rule in the universe. That when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack, and death itself would start working backward. So Lewis, what he's doing right here is giving us a metaphorical picture of what's going on on the cross. If you have a truly innocent victim suffering for the guilty, then somehow redemption is written into the logic of the universe and curses start to work backwards. And so that's why Paul in Galatians 3.13, talking about the curse in Deuteronomy 21, can say, yeah, Jesus did become a curse on our behalf. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So why does God empty himself out? Well, it's for the salvation of his people. It's to undo all the effects of sin and the curses that we all, like, experience. You've experienced it. Like, you know that things are not the way that they're supposed to be, and you're not the way that you're supposed to be. And we need something or someone to put us right and make us right again. Paul says that this Jesus, through pouring himself out, through obedience on a shameful cross, is the one who can do that. 
and Athanasius. Athanasius was an early church father uh, who lived in a time when Christianity was growing uh, throughout the Roman world, but still, um, still kind of a, a, a minority. And he was always pointing to the glory of the cross. Um, and, and he says that Jesus chose the most shameful, weak form of death to prove his victory. Athanasius, he says he did this, he died on a cross, in order by destroying even this death, even the worst possible kind of death. He might himself be believed to be the life and the power of death be recognized as finally fully destroyed. A marvelous and mighty paradox has thus occurred for the death which they thought to afflict on him as dishonor and disgrace has become the glorious moment monument to death's defeat, which is why you can see the symbol of a shameful cross turned into a symbol of victory and love and redemption. And as a result of Jesus' self-emptying obedience, look at the result in verse 9. Therefore, because of this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, so what? How would it change your life if you viewed God not as ultimately disappointed in you, not waiting for you to mess up, not waiting to smite you or crush you, but as the one who entered ultimate weakness, took on ultimate shame, tasted death for you, for your sake. It is in God's nature to pour himself out for his beloved, which is you. It's who he is. How would that change the way that you treated others? If you're a recipient of that kind of grace, what does that mean for the way that you respond when people wrong you? Or even when people annoy you, let alone wrong you? What would that do? And and we see the answer to how this changes our relationships throughout this passage because um, the words come in context of Paul urging us to treat others around us the way that Jesus treated us because, he says, we have the mind of Jesus in us. Let let, let me read this again. I'm I'm just going to start reading in verse 1. Paul gives us this beautiful picture of who Jesus is, um, how he poured himself out, all in the context of how we're supposed to live with each other. So he says, Philippians 2 verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, which again is not a virtue, humility is weakness in this context, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind, that kind of humble, self-giving, self-emptying mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
So in 2008, uh, these, the, this, this passage like, changed my life. Um, I, I grew up in the church. I'd heard a lot of, uh, you know, I'd heard all about Jesus uh, for all of my life. And yet, I, like, I was a wreck, man. I was so insecure. I, I did not know why I was worth, um, like, having around. I, 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 I couldn't give you an answer for why, like, you should be friends with me or why anything about me was worthwhile. Um, and, and so I was in, like, a random cabin in the middle of the woods in 2008, and I'm reading this passage, and something clicked for me. Uh, it's like I've read it before, you know, I don't know what it was. Um, but something clicked for me that, oh, oh my, oh, God, God, God isn't just disappointed in me all the time. He's, he's pouring himself out for me. Like, who am I? I'm someone that Jesus gave himself for. I'm someone who, like, Jesus has given himself to. So, which means that, like, why am I worthwhile? It's because Jesus loves me. And Jesus gave himself for me. The God who made everything somehow sees me and loves me enough to become a slave and to be crucified. And if that's true, like, who cares what else is going on? That, that, that's, that's foundational. That's bedrock. It also gave me, like, vocation and purpose because I was like, wait a second. If I have received this kind of love, well, that means I can love other people in that way. I don't, I don't have to love people or be nice to people so that they like me or so I can get something from them. Like, what, what, what could they give me that I haven't already received from God? I can actually love people genuinely for their sake, seek their good without having to get anything from it. And here's the crazy thing, right? That seems like a wild way to live. Verse, like, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Count others as more significant than yourselves. Awesome. Easy. Right? We don't do that. We don't do that. But Paul says in verse 5, have this mind of those things among yourselves, which what? Is already yours. It's already yours in Christ Jesus. That's an inheritance of the gospel. It's something that God gives to us. He gives us his spirit. He actually changes us and makes us new. That really happens so that we can genuinely love each other. We can genuinely prefer each other. We can genuinely act as if they are more significant than, we, than I am. Are they? No. Like, we all, we're, we're all standing at the same foot of the cross, right? We are all in need of grace. And yet, if God in Jesus Christ can act as if I am more important than him, which is what this passage is saying, well, then surely I can do that for other people in my life also. How would that change your relationships if you operated with that kind of mindset? Instead of approaching community or friendships with a what's in this for me or what can I get out of this or how am I being benefited or fed here, well, if the next time you showed up to a family dinner or to your community group, you were like, how can I do everything that I can in these next few hours to act as if these people are more significant than I can? Like, how would that change your relationships? How would it change it if every other person in the room was operating with that mindset also? So Romans 12, Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. There's like a competitiveness of, of like showing that other people are better. That's, that's different than what we normally do. 
I think that would change things. How do we do this? How do we grow in this mind of Christ, which is already ours? Because that's the challenge. The challenge is not to achieve something that we don't have. The challenge is to exercise a mind that we already do have. And the answer is to always come back to looking at the cross. When I was in seminary, uh, one of my teachers was telling a story about uh, two men that he uh, met when he was, when he was young. Uh, they had been really influential, really, really successful. They had written dozens of books between the two of them. They had started institutions, started schools, started magazines. Uh, you know, they were hanging out with presidents, really wealthy people. And when my teacher uh, encountered them, they were like in their 70s and 80s and sidelined. People, no one knew who they were anymore. Um, and he said, like, hey, I've seen the institutions that you've started get new leaders. They're talking at all the conferences now, and you are just kind of in the back row showing up and making coffee. Uh, and he said, and you guys don't seem bitter about it at all, um, which is unique, right? Someone who's really successful, someone who's used to being in the limelight. Normally, it's really, really difficult when you aren't in the limelight anymore. Uh, and, and my teacher uh, basically said that the only answer they could give was, well, how on earth could anyone be arrogant when they're standing at the foot of the cross? How, how can we be grasping for ourselves when we see how Jesus poured himself out for our sake? So do you want to live like this? Come to the foot of the cross. Receive the God who poured himself out for you the God whose nature it is to empty himself for the sake of those that he loves. The reason that we do communion every single week is because uh, we forget and we grasp and we try to take hold of things for our own benefit and our own advantage. And we need the action of all coming to the same spot um, for grace. Communion is a declaration that Jesus is our only hope, that the cross of Christ actually is sufficient to give us the grace that we need, and none of us have any perks or privileges that are unique to ourselves. We're all coming to the same spot, and we're all in need of the same grace. So if you are a Christian, then come and take communion with us to close the service. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he washed his disciples' feet again, treating them as if they're more significant than him. And then he took bread, broke it, said, this is my body, which is broken for you, for your salvation. He gave them wine, which says, this is my blood of a new covenant, a covenant of life where curses are undone and there is a new way of living before God and before others take, receive. And as often as you do it, remember me which is why we come together every single week to remember grace, to grab hold of Jesus, to give, to take everything that he has to offer us and say, hey, we don't have it. We need what you have. The way that we practice communion here at Redeemer is we will have a station up in the balcony uh, with a loaf of bread and wine and juice. We'll have two of those stations down here and then a gluten-free single serve station to your right, my left, right over here. 
um, come down and you can either t- uh, take one of the single serve. There's a, a little cracker. There are two cups. There's a cracker in the bottom, juice in the top. Uh, or you can come tear off a piece of bread and dip it either in the wine or the juice. The wine is in the stoneware. The juice is in the glass. If you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here. Use this time to uh, maybe pray and ask God to reveal himself to you. We have prayers in the back of the pew that can help guide you. We'll also have prayer ministers off to the side who would love to pray for anyone who is in need of prayer. Um, but uh, don't, don't, don't come and take communion. Uh, spend some, some of this time to do business with, uh, with God. Um, so I'm going to pray. I'll invite the uh, servers and uh, worship leaders to come back up and we will finish the service uh, at the table. So will you pray with me? Uh, God, thank you that you aren't someone who's just grasping and holding on to things and expecting us to get our stuff together. Um, You actually give us everything that we need, even at expense to yourself. Um, God, you have emptied yourself. You've you've gone um, to the lowest spot and you make us new. Uh, so, so, Father, will you give us hearts that can uh, worship and comprehend like all of the mystery that we talked about, all the things that we don't quite know how to put together or make sense of? Um, God, will you make that um, will you make that worship in us? Wake our hearts up, make us new. God, thank you. Um, we love you, and you love us even more. Uh, so, in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Come when you're ready.